AM. American Majority. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org. This is Ned Ryan, and welcome to Episode 11, The Rights of the Colonies Asserted and Proved. The United States of America was, and is, a nation built on ideas, not on people, but on reasoned philosophical truths. Many historians credit the Declaration of Independence, or the writings of John Locke, for containing the philosophical origins of the American political tradition, and rightly so. However, there is a document that predates the Declaration, one that was essential to the theory empowering it. I am talking, of course, about the rights of the British colonies asserted and proved. The pamphlet was written by James Otis and was published in July of 1764 in the wake of the Proclamation Act, and just as revenue-raising colonial taxation was becoming the norm. However, in order to understand Otis's motivation for composing this pamphlet, we must go back three years to the summer of 1761. During the French and Indian War, the British began to realize how widespread colonial smuggling really was. As I have discussed in previous episodes, the Molasses Act and the Sugar Act were attempts at curbing the lost revenue caused by illegal colonial trade. Also, I have discussed the use of admiralty courts, or military tribunals, without the right to a jury in enforcing legal trade in America. However, another key tool used by the British authorities was the unlimited power of search and seizure. This power was granted to British agents and soldiers in 1761 in what were called writs of assistance, and the issuance of these documents caused quite a stir in the colonies. Writs of assistance were papers distributed to British military personnel or customs agents, giving them the power to enter and search any colonist's home, store, ship, or property without permission or a government-issued warrant. In addition, anyone with a writ of assistance was not held accountable for any damage he might do, so one had no reason to respect people's personal property. Essentially, anyone with a writ of assistance was above the law. Finally, and perhaps most heinously, anyone who had been given a writ could transfer it to any other person as he wished. This meant that once the power to search without permission was granted by Parliament the first time, the British government never had any supervision over who would have that paper and power in the future. People who had been given unrestrained power to search homes and ships could give that power to anyone else according to their whims and without accountability. In many ways, the writs encapsulated the very idea of the arbitrary rule of man versus the rule of law and inherent rights. Now, in 1760, the Court of Exchequer, a British government agency that dealt with trade, began issuing writs of assistance to customs officers in North America allowing them to inspect ships to enforce acts governing trade, such as the Sugar Act. As most international trade in America came through the ports of New England, the large proportion of these empowered customs officers lived and worked in Boston, the busiest port in America at the time. Now, it was no secret that Boston merchants made a great deal of money by smuggling and quote-unquote illegal trade. In fact, John Hancock's family amassed quite a fortune through smuggling, making John Hancock one of the richest men in America. Though he was remembered as a patriot and a good citizen in American history, Hancock was seen as a smuggler and lawbreaker by the British, though for some reason they never could quite seem to catch him in the act. 
All of this is to say that the British government did have cause to worry about the state of its trade relations with the American merchants. The British government, following its mercantilist policy, had mandated that all American colonies trade only with Britain. But of course, when markets are manipulated by governments, sometimes people seek other opportunities to make money. And Boston merchants, shocker, were ubiquitously and audaciously operating outside of this mercantilist monopoly. Needless to say, when the profitability of their smuggling was threatened by writs of assistance, the Boston merchants did not remain silent. Three weeks after the issuance of the writs, 63 Boston merchants banded together and filed a lawsuit against the British government, trying to get the writs nullified and repealed. Now, the merchants, of course, feared that their smuggling operations would be shut down. But the larger issue at hand was the threat posed by a government that claimed the power to search without a warrant. The Superior Court of Massachusetts, acting on behalf of King George, turned to the colony's advocate general, a man by the name of James Otis, to defend the legality of the writs of assistance. Otis, who I'll discuss in much more detail in the next podcast, refused to defend this power of the British government in court, and so he resigned his post. Immediately, he was hired by the Boston merchants to represent them in the very same case, but on the opposite side. And Otis took the job. When offered compensation for his legal service, he refused to be paid, saying, In such a cause as this, I despise a fee. I pause here briefly to note that Otis made a considerable sacrifice by taking this course of action. When he resigned his post under the British government, he was charged with desertion. In addition, he chose to prosecute the British government pro bono because he believed so strongly in the principle of the rights of Englishmen. So not only was he doing legal work for free in a relatively high-profile case, he also faced charges of desertion and even a possibility of charges of treason. James Otis, to put it mildly, was truly a man of principle. During the proceedings, Otis argued strenuously on behalf of the merchants, appealing to the long-standing rights of Englishmen for justification. His arguments culminated in a single five-hour-long speech in which Otis used such concepts as natural rights, representation, and liberty, and used such key words as consent, justice, and patriotism. Most famously, he is credited with being the first to say taxation without representation is tyranny. Listening that day was a young Boston lawyer named John Adams, who was so inspired by Otis's oratory that he later wrote, Otis was a flame of fire. Otis eventually lost this case, and the writs of assistance continued to be issued until American independence. But as history shows, his comments that day were not forgotten. The resistance to the writs of assistance is ensconced in our Bill of Rights, inspiring the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution, protecting Americans from unlawful searches and seizures. James Otis continued to hone his arguments for the next few years as colonial resentment and discontent with British taxation gained momentum. In 1764, he published a pamphlet entitled The Rights of the British Colonies Asserted and Proved. This document was a step-by-step -step explanation of the philosophical origins of British rights. Otis's goal was to take his natural rights argument that he had used against the writs of assistance and convert that argument into fighting taxation without representation and ultimately call for parliamentary representation for the American colonies. Otis began by asserting that governments, in general, derive their power from the consent of the governed. 
This concept would later be immortalized in the Declaration of Independence, but at this time it was still not recognized as a universal truth. Otis wrote, Supreme absolute power is originally and ultimately in the people, and they never did in fact freely, nor can they rightfully, make an absolute unlimited renunciation of this divine right. Now, this is a loaded statement, but it's an important one because in it we find many concepts that are essential to our American values today. First, power comes from the people and nowhere else. This truth rejects the notion peddled by the British for centuries that power is vested by God and one man, the king, and that this makes his authority unquestionable. Rather, Otis wrote, power is vested by God and the people, and they may give that power to whomever they choose. Second, the concept of divine right is crucial. By arguing that people cannot rightfully give up their divine right to delegate power, Otis invoked the Enlightenment concept that people have certain God-given rights that cannot be taken away by any earthly power. These rights would later be called unalienable by Thomas Jefferson. Otis reinforces this point when he writes elsewhere that God Almighty has given all men a natural right to be free. Later in the pamphlet, Otis denounced the absolute power of monarchs like the British king. Moreover, he went on to say and to compare such absolute power to the deification of ancient pagan princes. In Otis's mind, there was only a small difference between King George having unlimited power over the colonies and the Egyptian pharaohs or Persian kings claiming to be gods in human form. He concluded that the effect of such an absolute ruler would inevitably be violence. Otis asked, when a king's will and pleasure is his only rule and guide, what safety can there be either for him or against him, but in the point of a sword? The solution to such madness and tyranny, yes, Otis used the word tyranny multiple times, was representation for the colonies in the British Parliament, as well as a legislative body in America. In addition, Otis argued that Parliament did not have the authority to tax the colonies without such representation, and thus any taxes levied on Americans by Parliament were null and void. He complained that Americans' right to life, liberty, and property were being violated by the British government by such taxes, as well as by other actions such as searches under writs of assistance. Now, as we know, it would take a little more time before the American colonies would officially declare British taxes null and void. As a matter of fact, it would be another year with the passage of the Stamp Act. We also know that the colonists never got representation in the British Parliament, nor were they allowed to create a supreme legislature of their own. However, James Otis's pamphlet was crucial in its time because of its logical, sequential enumeration of the natural rights and universal principles that would form the foundation of American freedom. The concepts of natural law, the consent of the governed, the separation of powers, the responsibility of a government to its people, and the danger of absolute monarchy are all encapsulated in this one document, which was distributed to thousands of New England colonists. In addition, it was truly a defining moment in the life of James Otis. A former agent of the British government, he renounced his post under the king, joined the resistance against the tyranny of the monarchy, and published a document that would irreversibly immortalize his loyalty to the cause of colonial liberty. Publishing a document that so definitively set him at odds with his mother country took courage, and Otis was only beginning to show the true depth of his willingness to risk everything for liberty and justice. The rights of the colonies was just the beginning for Otis. As you'll see, 
in next week's podcast as I discuss Otis's life in more detail. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org and written by Ned Ryan and Eric Josephson and recorded by Ned Ryan. If you enjoy this podcast on American history, be sure to check out the History of the Constitutional Convention by Ned Ryan at AmericanMajority.org or on iTunes.